0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically. Enjoy responsibly.
1: What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or a Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the Smoke on the Water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Yeah.
2: A this is rock and roll.
0: Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg
3: Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to welcome the stars of the hit movie, Once. Plus, it's Greg's turn
0: to add a track to the Desert Island jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news.
4: Let me tell you how it will be There's one for you.
3: Interesting proposal from Canada, Jim. The Songwriters Association of Canada is proposing essentially a digital tax on music file sharing in Canada. They're talking about adding a $5 monthly fee for every wireless and Internet account in the country and then distributing this money to songwriters to compensate them for the massive Internet file sharing that's going on right now. We're talking about 50 billion files being shared every year This proposal puts some money on the table. It is designed to raise about a billion dollars a year, which would then be distributed to songwriters and bands for the music that they're putting out.
0: It's by far, Greg, I think one of the most sensible proposals we've heard about. So we turn to Eddie Schwartz, who is the acting president of the Songwriters Association of Canada. He's in Nashville at the moment. Eddie, welcome to the show.
5: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: How did you guys come up with this notion?
5: Basically, we were in conversations with the, uh, the government of Canada who um, informed us that they had heard what other parties uh, in the music industry were proposing for solutions to the problem of music file sharing on the Internet. And they'd listened to the labels and others, and they felt that they weren't hearing any solutions. So they sort of came to us and said, what have you guys got? Yeah. We sat down with uh, a group of songwriters from across the country. We reached out to songwriters in the United States. We talked to people at the Songwriters Guild of America. We, we talked to futurists. We talked to uh, publishers. And over the course of really a number of months, we developed the proposal as it now stands.
0: The first thing that uh, struck me when I was reading this proposal is it sounds a lot like the old Betamax VHS tax that was proposed when, when those forms were coming in for video.
5: Mm-hmm. First of all, I, I mean, I'm not entirely comfortable with the, with the word tax, it's one of those red-button words that really uh, you know, create an instant uh, negative impression on people. I think it's more, I mean, the way we look at it is the licensing fee. To me, the analogy that I think holds up is, has some more to do with performing rights. And if you understand the way broadcast works and how people like me, songwriters, get paid from broadcast. Basically what happens is organizations like ASCAP in the United States, they go to broadcasters and they say, you will pay us a small fee. That small fee goes into a pot, and performing rights societies keep track of what songs are being played on the radio, and quarterly, they say, okay, well look, um, you know, your songs were played this number of times, therefore you would, you would be entitled to this percentage of the pool. So that's a very, you know, a very rational, reasonable, I think, way of dealing with broadcast. The way you could look at uh, peer-to-peer and other technologies like that is it's kind of back to the idea of narrow casting, which is where you have individuals really communicating with each other. So really what we're saying is that the end user should be paying a license fee, uh, which would, again, go into a pool and be distributed to the people whose music is being is being file-shared.
3: I, I noticed that the uh, the Canadian Recording Industry Association president has been quoted as saying that, you know, he thinks of this as a pipe dream or a quick fix. He's re- he, you know, he's reluctant to be involved with this because he doesn't see it as a workable solution. I mean, how are you going to break down some of the resistance to this plan?
5: Some people in the broadcast industry, I'm sure you guys aren't included in this, love to to find the most controversial quotes and use those, you know, to set parties up against each other. And, and I don't know that I'm going to take the bait. I think Graham Henderson... <laughs> And the large labels, <clears throat> I think they have a problem. And rather than getting into a, you know a headbutting exercise with Graham or anybody else, I personally think that our proposal would do them tremendous benefit.
3: I, I was just saying before we got on the air here, Mr. Schwartz, that uh, I think it, the proposal is too smart for its own good. That uh, it is actually a workable solution. So why would the record industry want to embrace <laughs> yeah,
0: it? <laughs> exactly. Um,
3: you know, the record industry is going down the toilet as we speak. It seems to me that they need to do something there would seem to be a sense of urgency about uh, implementing a plan like this, because otherwise, in two years from now, these organizations might not even be here. I mean, wouldn't you say?
5: Well, amen. I think what you're saying is a conclusion that they will inevitably reach. Again, we think that this proposal is tremendously beneficial. We don't bring it, bring it forward because we're anti-record you know, record label. I Personally, you know, I've been able to make a living over the course of my career because of large labels. But that day, I think we all agree, uh, is past. I think the genie is out of the bottle. It's not going away. And why don't we just monetize activity? That's the future to me of all the arts, probably, ultimately. And, and sure. I think the music business is just the first one down the pike for you know, obvious reasons. Mm.
0: Uh, we're, we're talking to Eddie Schwartz, the acting president of the Songwriters Association of Canada. They have this really interesting plan for a fee, be about $5 Canadian every month uh, on your wireless and internet account to have access to basically any music on the net. Eddie, the one thing I wanted to go back to is you made the comparison to uh, the broadcast organizations like BMI, ASCAP, CSAC uh, as as performing rights uh, organizations that collect Revenue for um, artists based on how many times their songs have played mm-hmm. Greg and I have talked to a lot of people from those organizations had some of them on the show The one flaw would seem to be they measure it by they take an hour or a day or a week uh, Representing what an average station plays the problem is you know There may be this great bluegrass show that's only on on Sunday nights and, you know Madonna gets a lot of money from her performing rights organization But the little guy doesn't necessarily
5: Yeah I think that's a really good point and I and I totally agree with you now you know, we're an organization of songwriters, and we know what most people don't realize. The vast majority of people who do what we do for a living, songwriters, artists, don't make a lot of money. We wouldn't have gone forward with a plan that we didn't think could cover everybody. So the good news is there are third-party organizations. One of them that we've been talking to and working with is called Big Champagne, and Big Champagne works out of Los Angeles. And it's their sole part, sole job is to monitor peer-to-peer and other kinds of file-sharing technologies on the Internet, mm. they right now are convinced that they are getting no less than 70%. In other words, what, what ASCAP and BMI does is a survey, right? They take a small sample, and then they you know, mathematically amp it up to, to supposedly cover all the activity. Right. What we're talking about is a census where you literally get to count virtually every single File that's shared, and that's very important to us. It's a really crucial point, but I think we're at the point technologically where we can say we can do that, or we can come so close to doing that. I mean, I'm sure there'll always be somebody. Who says, hey, you know, my song's being file shared? Was file shared six times last, you know, last month, and I didn't get paid. So I'm not, I'm not saying we we have a hundred percent coverage, but I think we're going to get close enough that you know it's going to be good for for the vast majority of people who make music.
0: Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much, Eddie, for uh, talking to Sound
5: Opinions. Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: Greg, that is from the first and last J Records album by Taylor Hicks, one of the big American Idol winners. Just broke the other day that he has been dropped by J Records, which is the label run by Clive Davis, longtime record industry guru, has been a big supporter of all the American Idols, but not Hicks. <laughs> you know, Hicks sold respectably well with that album, but it wasn't enough. You know, he just didn't have the staying power. For Clive Davis to keep him on. What's more, six months ago, Ruben Studdard, who made three records for Jay, was quietly dropped after the last of those, the third. They say that the same thing may be happening soon to Jordan Sparks. So what we're seeing here is uh, American Idol about to come back to TV next week for its seventh season. going to be more popular than ever, according to many TV critics, because there's nothing else to watch on TV. The Writer's Guild of America's on strike, no taped programming, dramas, comedies though, are not premiering, and all there is is, you know, reality TV. The important distinction here, Jim, is that the TV show is still immensely
3: popular. It's like watching a train wreck. It is it is in that category of must-see TV for a lot of people because it has this peculiar fascination with watching amateurs try to sing these classic songs Once But that's these... not Translating yeah. To buying their albums Exactly With the exceptions I mean Carrie Underwood and, and Chris Daughtry Were two of the biggest Selling artists of 2007 And they are American Idol graduates And right now Carrie Underwood Appears to be a real Bedrock of Nashville And country music It remains to be seen Whether Daughtry Can continue his success But right now He's the biggest selling Rock act in America <laughs> The question is Jim What is the half life Of these performers I Right, mean, is it one album Is it three albums Right now we're seeing That after one or two albums The public loses interest interest really quickly. That's from Radiohead's new album in Rainbows. Not not so new in that fact that we have been talking about it for months. It was released as a digital download on Radiohead's website in October, Jim got a lot of uh, media attention then because they made it basically available for any price that consumers chose to pay for it, including for free. So for three months, this record has been available on the Internet, but it finally made it into music stores this week as a physical CD, and guess what? It ended up debuting at number one in the country, selling 122,000 copies. That makes four albums in a row that have debuted in the top five, even though they've been available as digital downloads, sometimes illicitly, for months ahead of their release however when they made this experiment on their radiohead.com website to release the record to whoever wanted it and pay whatever price they wanted they didn't release any data but this guy did
0: Greg, you know that song. It's Sunday Bloody Sunday by U2, but it's being covered by the poet and rapper Saul Williams, working with producer Trent Reznor, a track from Williams' third album, The Inevitable Rise and Liberation of Niggy Tardust. (laughs) Of course, a uh, reconfiguration of The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust, the David Bowie concept album. Williams' concept is nothing less than the state of of the African American community. It's heavy stuff musically, it's, it's interesting stuff coming on the, uh, the heels of Reznor's album last year, Year Zero. Now Reznor did a lot of interesting things on the net to make people aware of Year Zero. With Saul Williams' record, they decided to pretty much follow what Radiohead did. As Reznor wrote on his blog, a quick history Saul makes a great record that I produce. We can't find the right home at a major label. We decide to release it ourselves digitally. Radiohead charged people whatever people thought it was worth we've seen some estimates on that that 85% of people who downloaded that music paid and apparently the average was about $10 but we've seen nothing definitive that could be completely false Radiohead has not said Resner, however has this experiment with Saul Williams apparently only 18.3% of the users who downloaded the album paid $5. Now, you could download it for free with a relatively low-fi MP3, or you could pay $5 for one of the more high-fidelity—there were three different formats—one of the more high-fi versions, but only uh, less than 20% of the people paid. This disappointed Reznor. He wrote on his blog, I'm not sure what I was expecting, but that percentage— Seems disheartening.
3: Yes, and and it's great that Reznor is being so transparent about this process. I wish Radiohead was. I'm curious as heck what the (laughs) numbers were for Radiohead. But Reznor has given us a window into what this might mean for business opportunities. He's disappointed that only 18% of those people paid for the record. But get this, Jim. Saul Williams' 2004 record on a major label, on a major label, with marketing and all that stuff behind it, sold less than 34,000 copies. With this record, over 150,000 people downloaded the record. 150,000 people who may have never heard about this record because this guy never gets radio airplay. That
0: sets up a great base for Saul Williams to go on tour later this year. No, absolutely. And he probably never got a dime from any of the records he's made anyway, but he is an incendiary live performer. People who see him have their minds blown and suddenly become fans. He's in a better place today than he was. But let's talk about the record. We're going to play a track called Convict Colony from the inevitable rise and liberation of Niggy Tardus, which is really as much Trent Reznor as it is Saul Williams. Here it is on Sound Opinions.
3: Convict Colony from Saul Williams' new record, The Inevitable Rise and Liberation of Niggy Tardus. This is a man who uh, thinks no small thoughts, Jim. Um, He is talking about the black experience in North America. That song, talking about being ripped from the motherland and living as basically a convict. Yeah. uh, The way he sees the black experience of the last 200 plus years in America. You know, he gets more personal as the album goes along. And I, I have to say, I love some of the more personal stuff at the end of the record. It's not this necessarily this political manifesto all the way through. But the defining feature of this record, not only saw Williams' voice, but the production by Trent Reznor. Trent Reznor is scuzzing up every beat he can find (laughs) and and giving him this really dirty, percussive background. A lot of the songs basically come down to voice and percussion, very distorted, with occasional blurts of synthesizer and some other instruments in there, but generally a a voice and percussion type of record is a twisted take on hip-hop. And I'm glad to say it does not fall anywhere near the realm of a you know, that awful genre called rap rock yeah. that emerged in the mid mid to late nineties. It's really sort of creating a genre of its own. It's somewhere between spoken word, somewhere between hip hop. There's a little bit of industrial in there. They've defined a, a kind of a their own sound
0: here, Saul Williams and Trent Reznor. No, absolutely. Well, you know, Reznor once again proves his mettle as a producer because Williams' first record was produced by none other than Rick Rubin. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a third-tier sort of rage against the machine thing. Yeah. Because Williams is primarily a poet, an actor, a screenwriter writer. He came to hip-hop fairly late in the game. And, uh, you know, if you can't make a really interesting record with Rick Rubin, you know, here he is a great live performer on record he hasn't translated. I wish I'd discovered this album sooner. It came out in November. It didn't really start to make a lot of news in the United States until the last couple of weeks when Reznor began writing about how disappointed he was with this release. It would have been a real contender for my album of the year because sonically and conceptually, it is absolutely mind blowing. And again, it's out there on the net. You don't yeah. have to take our word for it. You can go download it for free. It does underscore one of the problems with this new means of distribution. You can put out your record and arguably have more people than ever hear it, but how do they know it's there? I mean, on a twist on that old canard, if you put a CD out and nobody hears it, did it really happen? <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, you know, but I love this. This is a buy it album for sure.
3: Yeah, you know. There's not a lot of hooks here. I mean, this guy's not really concerned about melody at all or choruses or things like that. But uh, this is a heavy duty record, and it's kind of a record the more you listen to it, the more you get out of it. I love records like that that sustain themselves over extended listening periods. So I'd have to say, you know, Trent Reznor wants five bucks for this record. Five bucks! I think it's worth five bucks. That's
0: like a grande latte, (laughs) right?
3: (laughs) Exactly. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we welcome the stars of the movie Once, the band Swell Season, for an interview and a live performance. We are
1: broken wide open. Smashed and bent Not what you'd expect From these city streets Who serves to protect The orchestra in me Conductor, conductor I feel electricity Conductor, conductor Bring out the song and to to dance, dance to
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, and we are here in the Jim and Kay Maybe studio with Glenn Hansard and Marquetta Urglova, otherwise known as the Swell Season, also the stars of the indie hit movie Once. I called you guys the Jay-Z and the Beyoncé of uh, indie cinema in the paper the other day. (laughs) You're the new stars. (laughs) I
0: read that. I was going to ask them what they thought of that, if they bothered to read their press. That's
3: right. So We're going to call Glenn Jay-Z, and we're going to call Marquetta
6: Beyoncé. I want to be Chris Christopherson, can I? Can we change it? Sure, why not?
0: Does that make you Barbara Streisand,
6: (laughs) Marquetta? That's all right. Barbara's beautiful.
3: Anyway, we're glad to have you here, and um, I guess uh, the best place to start is you know you put out a a terrific record last year that kind of uh, swam under the mainstream radar. Uh, Many of those songs ended up in the movie Once, and now here you are playing a sold-out tour. People heard those songs, loved those songs movie was made for under two hundred thousand dollars it was like a homemade movie ended up becoming a hit at the Sundance Festival ended up grossing 12 million plus and still growing Glenn you've been doing this a long time where where, where's your head at right now with the (laughs) what's
6: happened in the last year Uh, I must admit I I, I'm I'm, of course I'm blown away and everything has been everything has been a it's been an absolute whirlwind to be honest, and, and uh, I mean, even even the Sundance thing was a kind of a skin of our teeth thing. Was I mean, John sent this film to he sent it to Toronto, he sent it to, to Sundance, he sent it to a bunch of festivals, and everyone refused it. We got the official refusal letter from Sundance and everyone else. And uh, John
3: Carney, the, the director of the
6: movie, John, the director, yeah. And when uh, when we showed this film for the first time at a small screening in Galway in Ireland. And afterwards we met this guy and he said it was the first time me and Marcy seen the film. We were very proud of it and you know, thanking John outside and, and John said, That's probably the only time you'll see this on a big screen. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> was just, we thought was, you know, and we were like we we're just really glad we saw it. And this man came up and he says, Hello, my name is and his name is John Nine. He said, My name is John Nine. I, I, I'm here on holidays. Uh, I saw there was a film playing, I went in and um, i'd actually heard of your band The frames uh which was which was nice for me to see on the screen and i worked for sundance and i'd love to take a copy of this film over and possibly you know uh, give it to them and we didn't tell them that we'd already been refused we were just <laughs> like yeah sure here take the, yeah take the dvd so we took the dvd and we got accepted into sundance and so i have to say that since then you know since since we went over there in january it's been i can't believe it's less than a year it's still less than a year ago that we've been there and we've been you know the, the amount. I guess the amount of kind of work we've done—not necessarily work, but the amount of running around, or the amount of how busy we've been since then—feels no, it like yeah. it feels like about three years.
3: Uh, Marquetta, you were um, seventeen, eighteen when this film was being shot. This is your first experience, obviously, on a movie set. What was it, what was that like? Being sort of cast into this role as an actress. I mean, you're a classically trained pianist, grew up in the Czech Republic. How did that you being on this in front of the camera? How did that feel?
2: Um, I guess. It- it felt unusual for sure. I felt a bit awkward for a few days, you know. You, and whenever there is a camera around, you, you, I guess, you feel a bit self-conscious in some way. And then, after a few days, you just get used to it, and then you forget it's there. And you just you find it much easier to to just be natural around it.
6: You know, the experience making the film was one thing, but it's all of this stuff that's been much more, I guess, life changing. Mm-hmm. You know, the coming out and be, you know, we we tour, we we travelled across America in a bus last April. And uh, one thing that one should never become in life Is media savvy
0: <laughs>
6: And, and yeah. I, f- I find myself in a position where I'm actually able to talk And I don't like that I don't like the fact that I know what to say in an interview or they, And I have to say that it's kind of right now I definitely need a holiday Because <laughs> I want to go back to being innocent Where it's like, what? What do you mean?
0: So you're just spouting the sound bites.
6: Well, not yeah, and 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 trying to avoid it the whole time, and trying to get out constantly, trying to backtrack and get into. Don't make
0: that easy by asking the same darn question over and over. There you go. The main thing I want to know right now is why the heck you got three gaping holes in the middle of your acoustic guitar. I mean, you could probably buy twenty or forty today.
6: Haven't been asked that one before. (laughs) (laughs) See, See,
0: there we go. So I'll do my part. You do yours. Why the heck you got a guitar that looks like it got run over
6: by a bus, Glenn? Uh, I've just played it a lot. I've played it quite hard, and uh, recently we were in Japan. Actually, we were in Japan a few weeks ago, myself and Mara, which was, it was another incredible experience. I'm sure. And uh, when we were there, I took out my guitar and we were playing this small concert in, a, in a, like a town square. And I said, actually, I just realized my guitar is home because my guitar is a Takamine guitar. And I realized it was, you know, because it's a Japanese made guitar. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, my guitar is home. <laughs> and they said, it's funny you should say that because Mr. Takamine himself is here. And, and uh, they, this man came out on stage. It's, a, it's an elderly man. He had a guitar case and he gave me this brand new, you know, handmade version of this guitar. And I was very thankful. Of course, I was, very, I was blown away. And then afterwards, they said, well, the reason they gave it to you is because, you know, they're, they're ashamed of the yeah. fact that you're using <laughs> such a...
0: <laughs> the only part of that guitar that isn't defiled is the headstock that says Takamine. The rest of it really looks like it. We've got to put a picture of this on the web. It really looks like it got hit by a hand grenade.
3: Well... I have to say, though, watching Glenn perform the other night with Marquetta, you know, the intensity, even though you may say you're going through the motions a little bit or, you know, feeling a little bit jaded already, um, there was no sense of uh, a guy sort of phoning it in the other night. It seems like you were able to get into that space where you perform those songs in a way that, like, I think this guy's going to blow up and his guitar along with it. And I'm I'm amazed that the guitar is actually still in one piece if you perform those songs at that level, uh, well, every night.
6: Well, well, thanks very much. I mean, it, it, definitely in front of an audience, I find it very easy to get out, to go to the moment. I find it very easy to, when, when there's an audience because members of the public are very, very easy to tune into and very easy to enjoy. You know, whereas what, what I suppose, what kind of. Mm freaked me out on that tour was that we traveled all over the states we did breakfast shows every morning like we did literally 40 interviews a day it was insane and so by the end of it it was kind of like so you've made a film and they point the mic at you and it's like and somehow you know what to do Mm -hmm. and that's what bothers me I think in in life one should always be uh one should always keep a sense of wonder in their life and that's why I'm actually saying this because this is fresh for me I need to say this even though it might sound a little bit like oh my god this guy is you know is ungrateful I'm totally grateful I can't believe this has happened I've been in a band for 17 years I've been chipping away and now something's happened and it's been like a 17 year overnight success To be like Mm -hmm. and and I'm just and I'm acutely aware of the fact that in one year from now once will have been a film that happened a year ago and I hope that what, what, you know having toured and having played our gigs that a small modicum of those of, of percentage of those people who came to see us this year and who filled those rooms that's the oddest thing for me is standing in a room full of people and knowing that there's a percentage of people who are just kind of going to see the once people mm-hmm. perform and I guess I'm hoping in my heart of hearts that these people are going to enjoy the music and, yeah, so you
0: have to be good every yeah, night and stick around why don't we have a song would you guys uh,
6: indulge yeah, us yeah sure sure what do you want to do, Mar? Let's do like... Uh, let's do Falling Slowly.
4: Let's get us into it. <laughs> Two, three...
0: What a treat. Falling Slowly by Glenn Hansard and Marquetta Erglova. You're listening to Sound Opinions. We're here at the Jim and K Maybe studio with uh, The Swell Season, this wonderful duo. Now, Glenn, that was a song that first appeared, Falling Slowly, on, on a Frames album, right? Yeah. Take us through how it got from there into the movie, if you would, because it's, it's such a centerpiece of the film, and I think it's the one that, that, that first sweeps everybody off their
6: feet when they fall in love with this movie. Well th- thanks uh, John first came to me Maybe two and a half years ago With this idea for a film mm. That he had And he had Killian Murphy Playing the main role And he had asked me To uh, give him some songs Which for me As a songwriter Was the you know, best thing I could have gotten like I said earlier on, you're struggling away, you're doing your thing, uh, and so the, the opportunity to write a bunch of songs for a film is just a—it's a, it, a great—it's uh, a great gig to get if you like.
0: I got to inject in here. I mean, you started your career as a teenager yourself, busking on the streets of Dublin. When you're sitting on the street corner playing whatever people you know w- want to hear when they throw a few coins in your case, yeah. you know, it probably seems a, a world away to someday write songs for a movie. Yeah, absolutely, cool. absolutely. <laughs>
6: and especially what, what was especially weird about it was that the character was maybe to- was maybe seventy, eighty percent based on my own life as well which 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 when i got the part to play when i when i was asked to play that role really weirded me out to be honest because i was like wow this is so close to my own it's like me playing it's like me doing a biopic of myself Mm -hmm. a third through the story of my life so it was a very weird thing for me to sort of do and that's a whole other conversation we could have i guess at some point but so for me for me getting the getting the chance to write the songs for this film was was very exciting so i went to work straight away and uh and actually ironically I I finished the song with Mar before either of us were involved in the project and then gave the song to John John loved it and I to be honest with you the reason it's on a Frames record and the reason it's on the Swell Season record the reason the Swell Season record was made at all was basically us recording a collection of songs basically we we hadn't got the money to make to record these songs for John we had the money to basically home record them uh, which is fine just stick a microphone in front of yourself but uh so we went to the studio we had an opportunity to have we had four paid days in a studio to write two songs for a Czech movie that a friend of ours was making and he wanted us to submit two frame songs so I said to him okay if, you, if we have this four, four days in the studio and you want these two songs we'll record them for you but if anything else that we do in the studio can we keep and he <laughs> said sure so, so our deal was you get the songs for free we get to keep everything else we record yeah. so we, we, we knocked out two frame songs for Jan Trebek this Czech director great director so we had these recordings for John, a full album of, here it is, John, here's yeah. all the songs for your film. But we didn't think Once would ever come out. So rather than say, like, you know, uh, Glenn or Marketa, Glow, the songs from Once, not knowing the film would ever come out, we decided to call it The Swell Season, which was a book we were both reading by Joseph Skoretsky, who was a Czech writer we both loved, and we just decided to call ourselves a band name. And then when The Frames were making our album, the lads in the band were like, man, we should really put that song on The Frames record because it's, you know it's it's a really good song and the swell season record had sold 300 copies uh, nobody had bought it it was one of those weird under the radar records that comes out you know you know how it yeah. is you put out a record and sometimes it'll catch people's imaginations Sometimes it won't this record sold nothing so i thought why waste a tune put <laughs> it on the frames record and you know a few extra people are going to buy it and so, so the irony is that, that those two songs, When Your Mind's Made Up and Falling Slowly, have actually ended up on three albums that mm-hmm. we released this yeah. year, which for me is a little embarrassing. <laughs> but when you, consider, <clears throat> when you consider the headspace we were in when we were putting the, those records together, it actually kind of makes sense.
3: But, you know, the beauty of that song and, and of the movie in general is that the story is told through those songs. I was blown away by the fact that it was complete songs and you're telling the story of these characters, it's like a musical, but it's a cool musical. It's not like these people break out in song in the middle of the street, you know, for no reason. It's like, you go into this music store, this relationship is just starting to unfold, you've just met each other, it's a little awkward. You don't even know that she can play piano yet. You see, hey, she's okay, Let, I'm gonna, you know, let's, let's play a song, and Marquette is there kind of mm-hmm. comping along with you.
4: This is in C, yeah?
2: Yeah, okay, I can see that. <laughs> okay.
4: So goes Sam Da goes da 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 da. Yeah, and then there's a bit in there. Can you
6: can you do that?
3: And about halfway through, I was just like, I've never seen anything like this in a movie where you can just see this relationship and this couple getting closer through the performance of this song.
6: Yeah? And then the chorus, that's, so you have those two bits? Mm-hmm. And the chorus goes. Da, 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 da.
3: Marquette, I guess can I ask you what stage uh, of the relationship were you in at that point in terms of that song? I mean, it seems so it literally seemed like you were learning it in the moment. Obviously, that's not the case, but how were you able to sort of get that moment of, "Oh my God, we're doing something together, and it's this chemistry that's occurring on the screen at that time?:
2: Well, I mean, people keep talking about some kind of chemistry that we have together, but you know it doesn't mean that we see it. You know, we're not aware of some chemistry when we play together, we just play together and, and have a good time doing it, but we, we don't see any sparks between us, you know. So we just basically did what we did when we were writing the song, and and uh, John caught it on camera, and he saw what you saw, I guess, because he was an observer, as as the audience are, but we don't, you know, it doesn't mean that we see it, if, if that makes sense, we just play music and and what you see is not necessarily what we see.
3: <laughs> I think it's great to have the camera there as sort of a voyeur into that process, though. Yeah. And I was in a, in a theatre with an audience, of very mixed audience, I mean, people from their 20s into their 60s, and everybody was there just with their jaw on the floor by the end of that. It was just like, this was a really moving testimonial to how music can create a storyline and get
6: you involved in these characters. And, and, and it's funny, with this scene, what it was was that John had seen... When John auditioned Marr, there was no script, there was no script reading, there was no, she didn't audition for him in the traditional sense. She came and played some piano for him. Uh, I got Mar over from Czech and I said, look, my friend John's looking for an actress. He's looking for a girl who plays, uh, Eastern European, who plays piano and sings. Now that's you. So if you come over to Dublin, I'll introduce you, play him some piano, maybe read him some lines. And Mara came over and uh, and we we sat down with John and John had brought his small video camera with him. Uh, I think in order to audition Mar, but I ended up just filming me and Mar playing this song. Mm. And just before we start playing, myself and Mar were like, "Okay, so uh, first verse, and then, and then we go into the bridge." Because you know the song was still, you know, I guess we were still figuring it out. Mm-hmm. And John was like, "This is great. Whatever di- whatever you're doing here is what I really want to get when we when we shoot it. And when we shoot it, I'd love to I'd love you to try to remember where you are now and try to reenact how you put the song together in the first place." And so John's fascination was. You know, he says, "I love to turn on the TV and see some guy painting a picture. I love, you know, I love, mm. I love what happens There's a few lines that then turns into like suddenly there's some perspective, and then he puts a little white strip across the side, and suddenly you've yeah. got sunlight hitting something." And he says, "I think people are really fascinated by watching others work, mm. and he says that would be wonderful to try get that in a film, to try get that moment of watching people actually work."
3: Yeah. Now, Marchetta, you have a an interesting role in the film in that you're you're kind of pushy, you're kind of bringing this guy this kind of sad, lonely guy out of his shell, and you're challenging him a little bit. Obviously, there's been a lot of parallels between what you what your relationship is like in real life and what this movie's like, but how does that parallel your relationship to Glenn as a songwriting collaborator?
2: Well, I guess we do take that attitude toward each other because we're very close. We don't, you know, we can say things as they are. We don't have to tiptoe around each other, and we can just be straight with each other and, and kind of untrue that we motivate each other and we, you know... I I won't say that I'm as bossy you know if somebody told me I don't want to talk to you I I really don't think I'd still be standing there 10 minutes later Um. (laughs) Mm
6: -hmm. One of the first times I met Mar Mar's father had invited me to go stay at the house because basically myself and Mar's father became friends uh, and he invited me to go stay in the Czech Republic maybe 6 years ago and I remember I was sitting up in the room and I was recording something and I knew Mara played piano, so I asked her to come up and would she just basically play some, a few a simple lines over the top of something I was doing. And I remember one of the first things she said to me was, was, uh, this, this, you know, because she had the headphones on, she was listening, she says, this lyric you're singing, did this happen to you? And, uh, and I was like, well, w- which one? And I listened, and she, I was like, well, you know, it, it kind of did. You know, it's kind of mm. poetic license. She was like, what do you mean, like, poetic I said, Well, you know, I'm using metaphor to make my point. And she was like, so this didn't happen to you. And I said, well, no, They're like not, ex- not exactly. So this didn't happen in your life. And I said, no. She said, well, why are you saying it?
1: Mm.
6: And I remember that was one of the, like, I remember, like, knowing that moment. They're like, man, this girl's, like, she's straight ahead. I mean, yeah. you know, I've been, in a, a, again, like, a, in my band for years, and nobody... You know, none of the guys really... And actually, sometimes the lads are like, oh, I never knew that lyric, you know, like 15 years later. It's just we're not listening to that part of it, whereas Ma was totally tuned into it.
3: All right, another song, uh, Marquetta Mm -hmm. and Glenn?
6: Yeah. Should we do Once? Yeah. One,
4: two, three, one, two, three. Part of me is that And won't return And part of me wants to hide The part that's Better look for you once, once, but not anymore. Hear the silence, call me. yeah talk to you Once Once But that was before Once Once I would have laid down and died for you Once Once But not anymore sirens call me
3: That was the title song from the Once soundtrack. Glenn Hansard, Marquetta, Erglova, The Swell Season. Great having you guys on Sound Opinions.
4: Thank you. Thank you. I think it's time.
0: Check out photos and bonus tracks from our session with the swell season at soundopinions.org. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with Greg Cott's Desert Island Jukebox Pick. Come
1: on. you remember? We were shipwrecked
0: together. Out the I'm on. Yeah, I'm on my Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That music heralds our Desert Island Jukebox segment. Greg Cott, you have the first pick of 2008.
3: Thank you, Jim. It's an honor. And uh, I must say that I was inspired by the uh, visit from Glennon Marquetta of The Swell Season. I, I like uh, collaborations. I like songwriters who complement each other. I like the energy that that creates. And I think that movie captured what it's like to write songs together. And so I started thinking about, okay, what bands do I like where this kind of collaborative thing is going on? Obviously, most bands have a single songwriter, and the band is sort of like helping this guy out, or gal. But I think some of the strongest bands of all time have had two or three great songwriters vying competing to write the best song, or in some cases, collaborating. We can think of many famous examples of that, from The Beatles to Husker Du, where people talk about these bands to this day. But I think one of the bands that succeeded in doing this collaborative songwriting approach, writing great songs, and really doesn't get the due that they're owed, is a band called Lush from the UK. started in the late 80s as, as a collaborative band between two primary songwriters, Mickey Berenier and Emma Anderson. Mickey and Emma didn't really write together, but their songs sort of answered each other in their records. And as they went along, they made four or five fabulous records, a bunch of EPs. They were part of that British shoegazer movement, big swells of guitar defining that sound. Much better known bands in that genre are, are bands like My Bloody Valentine, Your Beloved Ride, yeah. um, several others. Slow Dive. You know I love the shoegazer. Absolutely. Lush was in that category, but never really got their due with those other bands. I think one of the reasons was that they always had a pop thing going on as well. To my mind, I saw them as sort of a middle ground between that heavy guitar sound of My Bloody Valentine and those cooing female vocals as defined by the Cocktail Twins. Mm -hmm. Wonderful combination. I love that sound. Those fragile female vocals melding with those big cyclonic guitars that is just a killer killer sound and I think it was defined best on their debut album in the United States in the early 90s called Gala which was just basically a combination of their early UK EPs the best of those EPs was produced by Robin Guthrie of Cocktail Tunes. one of the founding members of Cocktail Tunes, exactly and I think they got the sound just right on this song that I'm going to play here's those guitars here are those voices in beautiful harmony on a song called Deluxe, it's on Sound Opinions. That was my Desert On
0: Jukebox Picks, the first of 2008. It was lush with deluxe. Great choice, Mr. Cott. Got some thank yous to say. Our session with the swell season was recorded by Mary Gaffney and Sarah Toulouse. And Sound Opinions was produced, as always, by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Dave Mahler, the intern, with executive production and fearless leadership from Tory Southside, Malatia, who, I gotta say, has not been the same ever since Ruben Studdard was dropped.
1: Ting a ling, ting a ling goes a telephone, ting a ling, a ling, a ling -ling goes my heart. Ting a ling, ting a ling goes a telephone, and I know that the fireworks will start.
3: On sound opinions, everyone's a critic, so now it's time to hear what you have to say.
0: New messages.
7: Hey guys, this is Jim from the south side of Chicago calling in response to the show from this past weekend with your in-studio guests, the Fiery Furnaces. They uh, sound to me like every band that I had to put up with in the Boston goth music scene who had a huge chip on their shoulder about proving that they had a genuine English degree and making the music that they did as complicated as possible and as literary as possible, and in the long run, as unlistenable as possible, in an effort to be, I don't know, as indie as possible or something. But um, big pile of noise, not at all interesting, big waste of time. Sorry it was on the air. Navigator
1: didn't happen, I consulted my On page 333 three, 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 was the hieroglyph of for the leatherback shell as I felt I was instructed. I Xeroxed it and post it down by the bike office at the Oriental Institute. Maybe another world entity would see it and pass it on to those responsible.
7: Hey guys, so I'm touring the nation and I'm catching up on all my sound opinion shows. Every week you guys rail against the big wigs who shake down the people for you know illegal downloading. Most artists aren't big wigs and most artists aren't on big wig record labels. You know, in fact, I'm an indie artist, and I've spent my life developing the value of my intellectual property and of my master recordings, and it's my legal right to be able to name my price point. The audacity of your opinion, I think, is illuminated mostly by the fact that there's these digital download services where you can pay a paltry sum and get a ton of free music every month that's totally restriction-free. You can put it on any, any device. When I get paid from them, I get pennies per song. Pennies. So what you're basically advocating is like this weird reverse Robin Hood thing you, you got going on. It's stealing from the trenches of what is the pulse of the indie music scene. So you can hold your position, but I think you've got to call it what it is. It's, it's stealing from the poor. Now, I'd also like to note that you guys are critics. And I'm I'm guessing there's like 40 or 50 years combined of of you guys being music critics. And that's 40 or 50 years of you guys getting, getting all your music free at the expense of the artists and the label. I just think your position is a little tenuous. So, that said, I love the show. Love the show. Totally addicted. I'll be listening more. Willie, signing off. I live in Laurel Canyon, California. Talk soon. Bye.
8: This is Gavin Jackson, and I just wanted to say that I couldn't agree more with your glowing review of Lupe Fiasco's The Cool. As a college junior in Milwaukee, I've seen the poverty contrasted with the excesses of college life, and um, honestly, I've always been aware of the social problems, but it never stopped me from trying to feel good and doing a lot of the things that The Cool actually says is bad. It just puts you into limbo. And if any piece of art, I should say, any album, any artwork, any movie would affect me personally and my drug use, it would be The cool. Don't you know that
1: I run this place And I've begun this race Must I rerun this pace I'm the reason It's become this way And their love for it Is the reason I have become this praise
8: This album I listen to just to stay strong when, you know, I think about using narcotics. Basically, it's one of the best albums of the year and it's uh, an album I'll always hold close to my heart and I thank you for reviewing it and I thank you guys for introducing me to hip-hop because I basically never listened to even James Brown before you guys reviewed Mad Villain and I thank you guys for pointing me in the right direction so keep it up, it's good work thanks guys